Hi everyone, this is Lauren, and I'm inviting you to pause for a moment with Brevard Zoo. We have another full house on our podcast today. When I first joined Brevard Zoo, I was so surprised to learn about the scope that our zoo and zoos in general take on, not just in the conservation of animals, but in the conservation of so many other amazing things in our ecosystem. So today I have Adam Klingenberg with Restore Our Shores, Alyssa Rice with our conservation department, and Justin Wigglesworth from our HR department and our resident beekeeper. And they will be talking to all of us about native gardening and pollinators. Thank you so much for being here, guys. I appreciate it. Happy to oh, be here. Thank you, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having us. Oh, I really love this group of people right here. <laughs> this is such an interesting group from like all over the zoo. So I think this is going to be a really great podcast. I just wanted to start with each of you. Give me a little quick bio, what you do at the zoo, how long you've been with us, that sort of thing. Uh, just because he's on my right, Adam, if you want to try to start Absolutely. Us off. So, like you said, my name is Adam Klingenberg. I work on the Restore Our Shores team. My job title is the Conservation Construction Lead. So, I get to do a wide variety of different things. It's one thing I love about my job. But the Restore Our Shores team focuses on Indian River Lagoon restoration projects. And I get to do a lot of the logistics side of that. So, that's ordering material acquisition, figuring out how many oysters we need to put on a reef for how long it is so uh, a lot of the logistics a lot of the equipment operation i think the fun stuff so i think fun too and that entails um all of our different restoration projects so whether it's oysters clams seagrass mangroves shoreline plantings all that type of stuff so thanks absolutely Alyssa. i am a conservation coordinator here at Brevard zoo and my position is very varied yes uh, every time I see you or I'm like working with you, I'm like, oh, Alyssa takes care of that too. Wow. Who knew? I know. I'm yes. trying to find a better word than random. Um, I oversee a lot of projects here at the zoo. So my main position is overseeing our international conservation funds. We will send money to conservation groups that are doing great things all around the world. And we want to make sure that we can support those projects, no matter what kind of species they're working with or building, reestablishing. We're there to help and provide them aid. I also oversee our wildlife emergency fund. So any kind of emergencies, natural disasters that pop up that has wildlife in need, we can help assist them there. I also work on sustainability initiatives here at the zoo. I oversee our some of our conservation outreach here through the conservation kiosk, and I also help Justin with the bees, one of my exciting favorite parts of my job. Exciting being the key word, I think. Exciting. Yes. Very exciting. Bees are very dramatic, and I love everything about them. <laughs> They are. Justin. So I am Justin Wigglesworth. I am the HR coordinator here at the zoo. We were kind of talking earlier about what I've done since I've been here. I have literally done just about everything. I worked at the cafe. I've been in finance. I've helped events. I also take care of the bees here. I never know what I'm going to be doing any given day. (laughs) I feel like that's very much a thing in zoos and especially in nonprofits is like, if you can help, we're going to have you help. You know, yeah. everybody has their hands and just about everything. And I love that. You know? I yeah. love it. Keeps it exciting. Yeah. Well, and it has, you, it has you working with so many different people, like what we're doing today. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I love that. I can't wait to tell you guys a story about when I took care of the bees. So we'll get to that oh, one a little no. bit. Yeah. I can't wait for that story either. <laughs> okay. So kind of did a little intro and talked about how we're going to be talking about native gardening. I guess my first question for you guys, the most basic of questions what is native gardening? What does it mean when we're gardening and planting using native plants? So native plants are really important to our ecosystem and our environment. And the term native refers to any species that occur naturally in the area. So whether it be animals or plants, fungi, anything in between, as long as they had grown here historically, typically we refer to that time frame as like before European colonization of the area. Those are naturally occurring plants that we refer to as natives. And we're going to be talking about gardening with them because they help us maintain our natural ecosystem here. Here at the zoo, we promote planting with these species because it helps not just our landscapes, our it helps our wildlife. It's 
beautiful and it helps with a lot of other issues that we face with our climate and with our uh, ecosystem in regards to pollution and water conservation all of those things tie together so they're really important here and we really like to focus on native plants here at Brevard Zoo. Absolutely yeah I'd say Florida is the land of of growing any plant really you want to it's an amazing ecosystem and that is lent to a lot of plants that aren't naturally from Florida um, being grown here and a lot of them they're perfectly capable of growing here without having an impact but some of them do have a negative impact and require extra fertilizers extra irrigation and those native plants that have been here for a really long time have the advantage of not needing those things they're adapted to that natural environment so you'll be able to grow them in your yard without any unnatural additions any unnatural supplements to to grow them so that's a huge advantage over some of those plants that require a lot more maintenance can you give me some examples of native plants Yeah, so in Florida, we are blessed to have quite the biodiversity of plants in the area. Some of our favorites here at the zoo are blanket flowers. They're beautiful, they're bright, they're orange and yellow. You'll see them all over on the roadsides. We have tixseed. I can't think of a specific species. Coreopsis. Coreopsis. We have Coreopsis tixseed. They are beautiful as well. We have lots of bee balm. I like dune sunflower especially. It's a uh, one that grows in our really um, sandy soils here in Florida and it will thrive and bloom year long and creates a beautiful kind of ground cover. It stays fairly low. It's a, a nice one to add to a landscape and it grows really rapidly too. So if you plant it in your yard, it'll help to keep suppress weeds. You know, it'll kind of outcompete other stuff that's gone. There's a, a huge variety depending on if you want um, more pollinator attractors, if you want soil erosion control. We deal with a lot of um, plants that help retain soil and help reduce erosion along coastal shorelines. So depending on what you want, we have a massive variety of different native plants that can do a lot of different things. One of my favorite native plants is the scorpion tail. It has these beautiful, very tiny white flowers that go right on the end of the stem and the stem starts to curl under. So it does look like a scorpion tail. It's curled and those flowers are so small, but there's always butterflies on it. We have a lot of it growing in some of the back areas of the zoo and it's one of my favorite things to see. That sounds so neat. I'm going to go Google that. There's actually one right next to the staircase leading into the next building over here, so you can see it. Even easier. I'm going to go take a peek. Um, So when we talk about native plants and why they're so important is that, you know, native plants have had time over thousands and thousands of years to evolve in this landscape with other plants and with animals to create the ecosystem that is natural to the area. So when we bring in plants, ornamental plants, plants from other countries that are beautiful that we like to put in our yards, it does tend to throw off the ecosystem of our area. So native bugs, pollinators, other wildlife that rely on certain species of plants don't no longer have those plants as options for homes or for food or for shelter because they're not there anymore. So when we talk about planting with natives, we're not just talking about planting pretty flowers at your home we're talking about essentially habitat restoration at home your home can also be a home for wildlife that is natural to the area it's amazing it doesn't have to necessarily be an entire landscape either you know you can add just one plant or just a few plants and the amount of habitat that it can create is is astounding you know i have one fire bush that i planted in my front yard and it brings in zebra long wings and it brings in other pollinators. So um, it, it can be just a single plant. You go to a, a local native landscape nursery, you pick one out and put it in your yard and you're gonna create habitat just like that. So it doesn't have to be an entire landscape. You can start, start simple and then build from there. One plant is an entire habitat for small species, multiple species. It can support a lot. So I wanna get into Restore Our Shores. When like people hear restore shores they kind of think of 
clams and oysters and like all these amazing things that we're like adding back to this major waterway for our area. But you guys work with plants too. So I would love to talk a little bit about mangroves specifically. So why are mangroves so important to the Indian River? Absolutely. So um, when you say restore our shores, like you said, you think about the things that are in the Indian River Lagoon, those oysters, clams, seagrasses. But one of the most important things about protecting the Indian River Lagoon is what goes on upland of the Indian River Lagoon and keeping fertilizers and runoff controlled um, from entering the Indian River Lagoon. So mangroves are a huge tool for doing that. They will help to pre-filter, per se, stormwater as it runs from land towards the water, but they will also uh, add a, a host of other benefits as well. They're shoreline protectors, so they have massive root systems that help to anchor sediment and reduce erosion along shorelines. And then they also create tons of habitat as well with those large tangled root systems. So they have a host of benefits. And when you remove mangroves or you cut back mangroves, it sends you into a negative feedback loop per se, where you're losing the habitat, you're losing the shoreline protection, and you're losing the uh, bufferment from stormwater runoff as well. So they're a massively important ecosystem in our portion of coastal coastal Florida, but also all around coastal uh, parts of the world. And we have a program that's helping people like bring mangroves back. Can we talk a little about that? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So part of the Restore Our Shores program in, is Adopt a Mangrove. And Adopt a Mangrove has been a crucial part of Restore Our Shores for a long time. Planting mangroves is an awesome way to engage the community because a lot of people who grew up in coastal Florida are familiar with the sea beans that you see floating on the beach or floating along the edges of the Indian River Lagoon. They look kind of like a long green pencil, and those sea beans are actually propagules for the red mangrove, which is a really common coastal species. So a lot of people have seen those. They've picked them up. They've snapped them in half, not really knowing what they are. Um, But being able to show people These are a native coastal species of plant that helps protect our shorelines and add habitat and teach people about how important mangroves are, Um, really helps them connect those walks on the beach when they were kids to how important um, those coastal ecosystems are. So our Adopt a Mangrove program, there's a couple different pieces of it, but one of them is people bringing us mangrove propagules that they'll collect on the Indian River Lagoon shoreline or off the beach. They put them in a five-gallon bucket with a little bit of water at the bottom. You always want to put the brown side down because that's the side the roots come out of. And on the top green side, there's a little pointy bit where the leaves will eventually come out of. So you want to put the brown side down the green side up, bring them to us in a five-gallon bucket with a little bit of water in the bottom. And then we can take those and they'll root in that bucket and then we can plant them into small pots uh, with a group of volunteers. So we will bring that bucket of mangrove propagules, um, one-gallon pots, and then a bunch of soil. And we'll have volunteers help us plant those propagules. And then we'll also teach them about our coastal ecosystems and why mangroves are so important. Um, so adopt a mangrove is a great way to uh, to out to to reach the the masses and and teach people about our coastal ecosystems. Cool. And if you wanted to participate in adopt a mangrove, how would someone be able to do that? So we host adopt a mangrove workshops occasionally, and those can be found on our restoreourshores.org website under the volunteer tab. Um, you can also always contact us via email. So our restoreourshores at brevardzoo.org email. That is a a great resource to reach out and say, hey, I'm interested in participating in the program. I'd love to get some mangroves. And we'll actually come and meet you and give you a few mangroves, some soil, and a pot so you guys can plant plant up the mangroves as well. But the best way is to wait for one of those Adopt a Mangrove workshops. And that way you'll get the full experience and the full presentation to learn more about the program. Cool. And we've started doing something else to kind of help protect the Indian River Lagoon from this runoff as well. That also involves plants, buffer zones. Can we talk a little bit about buffer zones? Absolutely. So mangroves are an amazing species, but they do require kind of a specific shoreline. So mangroves like to be close down by the water. They want to be um, inundated all the time with water. So when you have a shoreline that's been altered by construction, by development, maybe you have a seawall that's been added to protect your shoreline from erosion, it's a tough spot for a mangrove to survive. So usually they're a little bit too tall 
The mangroves will dry out if they're uh, planted on top of a tall seawall. So we use other coastal species in those situations that are a little more adapted to drier conditions. The, the buffered shoreline is, is a very common practice uh, for coastal ecosystems all over the world. People have known for a long time that you need to maintain plants on the shoreline to help with the variety of things. Like we said, with mangroves, other coastal plants will provide a lot of the same benefits as mangroves too. So a buffered shoreline is planting a natural or no-mow zone or low-maintenance zone along a watershed as well, where you're removing turf grass if there's turf grass existing there. So turf grass is high maintenance, like we said earlier, it requires water, um, extra irrigation, it requires fertilization, and it requires being mowed, so it's high maintenance. And removing that right next to the body of water and then replacing it with a natural native buffer zone. So what that does is it takes away the need for extra irrigation in that area. It takes away the need for fertilization in that area. So that will help reduce the amount of runoff that's coming from the uplands from land and making it to the water. It creates a buffer. So it creates a physical barrier in between existing turf grass that's higher up on the shoreline and the Indian River Lagoon. So it's a great way for people who have seawalls or people who um, are looking for other ways to get engaged. Maybe they don't have an area that's ideal for an oyster reef for restoration if you live in a canal, or you don't have an area that might be ideal for clam restoration. A buffered shoreline is a really awesome way for some of those properties to get engaged and still be a part of the solution in helping to reduce runoff into the Indian River Lagoon. And we just put one in at Oars and Paddles? We, we did, Oars and Paddles. Yes, we partnered with the city of uh, Indian Harbor Beach. Indian Harbor Beach has been an amazing partner um, for getting that project completed. We reached out and said, hey, the zoo's interested in, in doing a project. We want to do it on a publicly accessible shoreline so we can help educate people and show people. And we want it to be on a seawall because a lot of people have traditional vinyl seawalls on the Indian River Lagoon. So we wanted to really show that a seawall can be a habitat as well. It doesn't have to be just a sterile seawall with turf grass up in front of it. So Indian Harbor Beach was more than willing to offer up Oars and Paddles Park, and it was a really great site to be able to demonstrate a buffered shoreline and what those um, different benefits can really add, like we said. So we're really happy with how it's looking so far. We planted that about six months ago. It's been growing uh, rapidly. Um, it's exciting to see now that we're getting rain, the, the plants really start to get established and take off. So, You know, when I heard buffer zone, I don't know what I was expecting, but it, it looks like a beautiful little garden. Like it just, you got your mulch, you got your cute little plants. Like sometimes we, when we hear like these different solutions to kind of helping the Indian River Lagoon, maybe we shy away because maybe it won't be the most aesthetically pleasing or, or something like that. But this buffer zone, it's a beautiful little garden. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, you use those native species and you select them for their qualities of erosion control and their qualities of moving nitrogen and phosphorus and using those, but you can also select flowering species like blanket flower and dune sunflower, sunshine mimosa, blue-eyed grass, stuff that really is going to bring aesthetic beauty as well to those shorelines. So I'm impartial to marsh grasses. I, I like Spartina species. I like Buley grass, some of those kind of bunching grass species that grow to that two to three foot range i think they're really aesthetically beautiful and beauty grass is another really great one so adding those into uh, into a shoreline has all those benefits but also has aesthetic beauty like no other you know it really looks like a, a natural grassland and it's amazing how much habitat a simple grass planting can create. So if you plant a patch of muley grass, you're creating a home for little cotton-tailed bunny rabbits. You're creating a home for um, dozens of species that wouldn't have been there before in just a cut turf grass environment. So they're really amazing. Um, if someone's interested in like making their own buffer zone, do you have any tips, any thoughts? And we did put something out on our blog if folks want to take a look, and you can go to Orson Paddle Park and see what we're talking about. But any other things that they should consider? Absolutely. So it, it is a little bit labor intensive to get it installed. So if you're w willing to go out there with the shovel and get your hands dirty, it can absolutely um, be done all by yourself. We used a, a sod cutter to help remove the sod and they can be rented from your local home improvement store. So that'll get the sod out. And then we added a layer of cardboard to help 
reduce the weed pressure immediately so that cardboard is a natural weed barrier that will degrade over time and it'll as that you put the mulch in it'll help block um, some of those early weeds from coming up so we added the cardboard we added a nice layer of mulch on top of that and then we planted through the cardboard so it's a fairly straightforward process um, if you're not comfortable with going out especially this time of year into the into your yard and digging you can always contact a local native landscaping company too and they'll be more than willing to help um, design and install a buffer zone and the zoo is more than willing to answer questions as well you can reach out and we'll help point you in the right direction for getting a buffer zone installed very cool and here at the zoo we do a lot of that native gardening as well I would like to have our landscape team on in the future to kind of like really get into like what they're planting and and all that good stuff. But I wanted to kind of go into a special program that we've brought to our zoo, the Million Orchid Project. Alyssa, can you help me out with this? Yes. How did this project come about? What is it? The Million Orchid Project was started through Fairchild Tropical Botanic Gardens, and their goal is to propagate orchids and eventually to re-establish orchids in Florida, specifically aiming for re-establishing about 1 million orchids in this region. So it's a huge project. And here at Brevard Zoo, we have some amazing volunteers who are our orchid experts, and they applied for a grant through the American Orchid Society to start propagating orchids here at the zoo and establishing them here because here at the zoo we are a conservation hub for our community so that's a really easy thing as part of what we want to bring to our guests and when the guests come to the zoo they're learning about conservation of our ecosystems they're learning about conservation of animals all around the world and now they also get to have the opportunity to see orchids that are naturally from florida and In the United States alone, there are about 200 species of orchids that will grow naturally. Half of those species grow in Florida, and 50 of those species are only found in South Florida. So Florida is a really unique ecosystem for orchids. It was once a paradise for them, but over the years, especially when the railway was invented, people were poaching orchids off of trees out of their natural habitats and then selling them as disposable flowers as displays and selling them in stores and because of that poaching orchids have almost gone to extinction that and with habitat loss they're almost gone so what's really important when we talk about conservation we're not talking just about wildlife we're not talking about just big beautiful animals that are disappearing from the landscape it's also affecting plants so here we got this grant to start bringing in about 250 orchids to the zoo and they started planting and trying to establish these orchids around the zoo so as you walk around you can start seeing them but thanks to our volunteers chris and ernie they were able to really get this project going and they come every week to monitor the orchids water them, maintain them, make sure that they have the support that they need to grow. And we are very excited to be a part of that project. So you talked about like a lot of orchids do best in South Florida, which is a little bit warmer. What makes our zoo like a good spot for some orchids? Well, one of the benefits of having orchids here at the zoo is that they do need warmer temperatures. And during the winter, we provide extra heat so that our animals can have heat sources to stay warm through our winter. Because while we do live in Florida, we do get some colder nights, drops down to the 40s, sometimes the 30s, and the animals will need a supplemental heat to feel comfortable. Because we provide that supplemental heat, it actually creates microclimates within the zoo that it's just generating enough heat that stays within the trees and under the cover that it actually helps the orchids survive through the winter where they wouldn't normally in this region without extra heat. So because of what we're the care we're providing for the animals here, we're actually able to provide great care for the orchids as well. So this is what makes Brevard Zoo an ideal spot for our area and not just not just the heat alone that we can help with the orchids but the amount of people that we bring in that we can teach them about orchids while they're also learning about really cool animal species brings it all together as like a perfect place perfect. to start it is a perfect place it's to start general, orchid but for orchids too <laughs> for, yes for, for everybody yeah. to talk about conservation our, uh, i'll throw one thing in there too Please. our our 
the fact that our zoo is built into a oak hammock lends really well to being a, an orchid habitat as well. So a lot of our our native orchid species really enjoy um, attaching to southern live oaks. And the zoo has a bunch of southern live oaks incorporated across the campus. So it adds a really, that, that kind of rough bark that's, that live oaks are known for are a great spot for orchid species to get attached to and grow into. So it, it lends a, a nice habitat for those orchids to, to grow. That's right. So look up. If you're looking for orchids at the zoo, right? In like kind of our wild Florida. Yes, so you can find orchids here at the zoo in the Caribbean Trail, Rainforest Revealed, and the Wild Florida Loops around the zoo. And um, you definitely want to look up because most of them are established in the trees, like Adam talked about. They Their roots grab onto the tree bark and that's how they hold themselves in place. Um, so when we established the orchids here, they were put up in the trees. They were given some little zip ties around the trees just to help keep them in place while they start growing those little tendrils and sitting tight so that they can hold themselves. So if you start walking around, as you start looking up, you're going to be seeing orchids in the trees. And depending on the species, they may be blooming. They may be not. Typically, with the orchids that we've planted here are usually in bloom during certain times of the year. Typically, one to two months, they'll be in bloom it'll change whenever you come to visit which orchid is blooming at a time but yeah keep a look up in the trees some of them are um, closer to the ground so anywhere you look in those sections you're bound to see some orchids once you kind of open your eyes and start taking a peek you'll see them mm-hmm. and a lot of times you know they're they're pretty subtle it's not um, orchids are are often known for being very showy and beautiful having large flowers um, a lot of our native orchids have smaller flowers than uh, ones you would typically see at the store and the the leaves that grow on them are a little more reserved they're not as showy so you really do have to have a keen eye when you're looking for uh, for the orchids there's other plants that also grow in the canopies of our trees as well that'll tend to look a little bit like orchids um, but once you figure out exactly what you're looking for you can start to pick the orchids out as you walk through the zoo it's really neat i went on like a little walk with our volunteers and they opened my eyes to <laughs> All these things that I just never really, you know, picked up on of like, yeah, that is what an orchid looks like when it's not flowering. That makes total sense. Right. But you just kind of walk by and you're just, you know, everything's beautiful and lush in our zoo. So you're just like, oh, it's another cool plant. But no, it's an orchid. Yeah. So yeah. once you see them, you'll start seeing them everywhere. everywhere. There are so many. It's really exciting. Yeah. Very cool. Now, helping out. All of our native plants, including our orchids, are bees. Oh, the bees. The bees. Okay, so you can't have native plants without pollinators. If you've ever crossed into our Lance of Change loop, you may have noticed some boxes on the left-hand side. Those are our beehives. Justin. Yes. Resident beekeeper. Yes. How'd you get into beekeeping? About two years ago, Carl went out asking if anybody wanted to come join, check out the bees, see what they were all about, and um, I thought, sounds that sounds awesome. It was actually to get over a fear of mine. I do not like insects. They all creep me out. Uh, a lot of people that know me, spiders and butterflies, I don't deal with. But yeah, I'll go down and take care of a bunch of stinging bees. You are brave. Yeah, for the, someone who is a, not an insect person to then go, I think I'll go with the stinging ones. And yes. all it all it took was one time down there, and to see everything that was going on in there, and all the drama that was happening in the hives, <laughs> and just everything—it's ab- absolutely amazing. Okay, drama in the hives. What does that mean? What's happening with these hives? Oh my gosh! There's what isn't happening? <laughs> what is the not they their, happening? They in the need hives. their own TV show. It's. It's absolutely insane. These, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. The, the hierarchy they have in there, everything that they're constantly working towards. We were out there earlier today, um, and a, a lot of times they'll get these mites and beetles in there, and these honeybees actually have like a beetle jail, and they have jailers that will put these beetles into jail and keep them in a corner the entire time. That is their only job, is to keep these beetles in the corner and out of the hive. It is absolutely amazing what they can do. That is amazing. They're so smart. (laughs) They're so so smart. 
It's one of my favorite things when we open the hives is watching the bees trying to keep the beetles in beetle jail in the corner. Yes. Like, you know, you got to stay here, beetle, mm-hmm. just hurting mm-hmm. them. It's, it's precious. Do you guys remove the beetles from beetle jail or are you just like, this is the natural thing? That's it. You're we do stuck. try to get them out of there. They're, you know, we don't want them in there. Um, sure. Because after a while, once you get too many, it starts causing problems in the hive. Um, I did want to go back and state very clearly that honeybees are not native. Um, they were brought over here from Europe. So we do have native bees. They're amazing. I'm learning more about them every day. Right now my specialty is kind of a honeybee, but learning all about the native bees that are the native pollinators here as well. Take care of the native plants. Why is it so important to have honeybees here for the for our ecosystem, for our plants? They are amazing pollinators. Without bees, honeybees in general, we they take care of a third of the food we eat. So without them, we would not be here. So they are extremely, extremely important. And butterflies too. They're they're, they're great. If but, I can just touch in for one second yeah, on absolutely. the natives. So while honeybees are not native to the United States, they are like an old world species referring to mm-hmm. Europe and Africa is where honeybees come from. But there are bees that are native to the United States and this half of the world. And those bees typically do not live in colonies. They don't have swarms. They don't have a queen. They usually live by themselves. And when they live by themselves, they're creating a nest they're collecting, they're still pollinating plants. They're creating pollen. They're uh, gathering nectar for themselves as their own food and for their offspring that they make. And usually the native bees that are here will typically either live in the ground in like a small hole in the ground. They'll bore holes into wood like carpenter bees and live in there. And they just live by themselves, just live in their best lives. And native bees are really important to native plant pollination like we talked about earlier but they don't produce the amounts of honey that we see from honeybees specifically and as far as pollinators go bees are excellent pollinators wasps also do pollinate butterflies birds and bats are all pollinators but when it comes to honeybees they are kind of like the best at it they're very efficient they're very efficient they are very efficient for people like myself who have forgotten their like middle school science, why are pollinators so important? Like, what are they doing out there? In order for plants to reproduce, they need to have pollen shared from flower to flower, and that is how they'll take that pollen in. It'll fertilize the plant so that it can create seeds or fruit to then drop more seeds to create more plants. And the more plants that are fertilized, they can create stronger genetics that will help maintain the evolution and adaptation of these plants throughout the generations that they exist. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) To put it so succinctly. So Justin, how long have we had bees at the zoo? So we have actually had bees here at the zoo since May of 2013. I actually had to go back and do research on that because I've only been doing it for two years. But yes, we have had them since 2013. And we actually um, work with the Brevard Backyard Beekeepers. They come in. Um, Clifton Best has been an amazing teacher. I've been learning from him for the last two years. He's almost out here weekly giving me all of his knowledge on honeybees. And he's just full of fascinating knowledge. That's amazing. What is the weirdest honeybee fact or honeybee thing that you have learned? So one of them uh, we just had to verify today is that there are 600 honeybees to a cup. So that is kind of when you're looking at the hive and you're trying to figure out how many bees are actually in the hive, you can pretty much judge that there are 600. I don't know who measured this, but you can put 600 honeybees in a cup and that's how kind of how you judge how many are in the hive. Okay, how many bees do we have in our hives? Ooh. Ooh. So we also we'll talked about estimate. Uh, estimate. We also talked about within the hive those boxes that we call supers. Mm-hmm. There are 10 frames inside each one of those boxes and the amount of honeycomb and cells they can make on one side of the frame is about 
three to thirty three thousand to thirty five hundred cells on one side so if you pull out a frame it has two sides to it so if the frame is full you're looking at about seven thousand bees on one frame there's 10 frames to a box and sometimes there's multiple boxes yes so i'm gonna say we're somewhere between 50 and sixty thousand bees right now wow a pretty average size high yeah 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 so we're doing good that's amazing i would never have guessed it i don't know i and with that many bees you have a lot of drama sure well okay (laughs) what's going on there yeah tell me a little bit about like bee life what we have different roles within the hives we have we do so uh we have the queen she lays the eggs We have the workers. They take care of everything in the hive. Um, They take care of the babies. They take care of the food. They take care of everything. And then you have the the drones that are basically getting a free ride. The males of the hive, uh, they are only there to do one thing. What what do the female bees do? What's their job? So they go out. They forage for the nectar. They come in and take care of the offspring. They... um, they're basically taking care of everything within the hive. They are also the jailers. They, when the, <laughs> when the little beetles have to go into beetle jail, they're taking care of all that. Interesting tidbit, only the female bees can sting. The males do not sting. They do not have stingers. Typically with a, a honeybee, um, they get one good sting, and then that will usually kill that bee. The exception is the queen. The queen can sting multiple times. What's the ratio of male to female bees in a hive usually? There are more females than males? There are a lot more females than males. Um, I don't know the exact ratio, but I know that most of them are female. Um, they are the workers. You, you don't typically need that many males in there because they don't do a whole lot. <laughs> How do they select a queen? They generally make their own queen. Uh, They decide which one's going to be the queen. Whichever one they decide to give their famous secret royal jelly to is usually who ends up being the queen. They take care of that one differently than they would a normal normal worker cell. It's a lot less or a lot more care goes into that. It's also much bigger, a much bigger deal. Is it true that the uh, first queen that emerges comes out and takes care of business with the others typically the first yes yes uh we have seen not the first but yes typically the first and they she will uh get rid of the rest if there are more than one so the worker bees if they feel like they need a new queen if the queen the current queen is aging or showing signs of getting older weaker not producing as many eggs as she should the workers will take some of the fertilized eggs and kind of create a larger little honeycomb cell around them that we refer to as queen cells. Mm-hmm. And they'll start, as those eggs hatch, they'll start feeding them the royal jelly, which is the regular worker bees when they're growing as little baby bees. They're getting fed. It's essentially the pollen that they'll mix up in their mouth, to what we like to refer to as bee bread. That's regular worker bread to grow but they will actually excrete a special enzyme from their mouth to mix regular bee bread to make it extra nutritious and special and that will help grow what would would have been a regular worker bee into a queen so they'll create multiple queen cells and so the first queen to hatch will go around and find the other queen cells and this is where that adaptation where she doesn't have a barbed stinger and can sting multiple times she uses that stinger to destroy the other queen cells that haven't hatched yet ensuring that she is the only queen okay you guys were not kidding when you said drama yes wow wow step one of drama that's that's that is correct yes Yes. if we want to go into this i know we've brought in a new queen and and that sort of thing in the past so like how much interference are we doing so there are times when we go into a hive and they are not either not requeening themselves and they need to be 
or they've lost their queen, or something has happened that has just absolutely devastated that hive, there are times when we have to go in and do some manual intervention. And that could be introducing a new queen to a queenless hive and see if they will accept her. There are also times when we have to go in the we could have a queen that is not putting off the right energy and they could be getting angry very easily and we have had a hive or two like that as adam very well knows um (laughs) where we we had to go in and manually replace that queen with a different queen to kind of get a different temperament in that hive bad queen vibes that's right okay. that's right that happens it does we like docile bees we don't really like angry bees they're no. not as fun we do not like angry bees um yeah they're they're pretty close to the boardwalk we we don't like when people get stung and we try everything in our ability to have happy calm bees is this the part where you tell us your bee story? Oh, I'd be happy to tell you my bee story. <laughs> your happy story about yes. unhappy bees. So I guess I have to preface it a little bit with this was in the middle of our oyster reef building season. So we were getting ready to install an oyster reef or actually supply move, which entails moving pallets of oyster shell from our shell site to our barge loading zone. And that requires driving a piece of heavy equipment and driving trucks and trailers. So that was taking place the day after I was going to be helping with the bees, kind of preface that story a little bit. So uh, Clifton Best, as Justin mentioned, is uh, an awesome beekeeper that lo- that helps us. And he asked if I'd like to come assist him, one de- uh, assist him to requeen one of the hives. So we had a hive that was acting aggressively. And when you would open up the hive to inspect it, the bees were becoming agitated easily and Clifton suspected that the queen may have angrier genetics or kind of passing on that to all of the worker bees within the hive. So what you do in that situation sometimes is you go in, you find the queen because you want to change the genetics of the hive and you kill the queen and you insert a new queen with genetics that you hope will be more calm and more docile. So that process looks like opening up the hive and then searching through the portion of the hive where the queen typically, the queen stays, the queen will stay in the lower part of the hive. So we opened up the lower part of the hive and we began searching through the frames looking for the queen. The queen is typically marked with a a ink marker so that you can more easily spot her if you do, if you are looking for her. So we were searching through the frames and taking them out one at a time. And uh, eventually we came across the frame that had the queen on it and Clifton requested that I grabbed the queen, squish her, and then throw her on the ground right in front of the hive. So I grabbed the queen, and I squished her and threw her on the ground in front of the hive. And uh, we started reassembling the hive, and the bees became agitated at that fact. And I had a pair, I was fully suited, and I had a pair of gloves on that had rubber soles, I guess per se, rubber on the palm side of the glove. And on the back side of the glove, there was a canvas um, area. And one bee found that they could sting me through the canvas on the back of the glove. Once I got stung once, it sends off a pheromone that, you know, we're, we're going to go attack, we're going to sting. And the other bees knew to search out the back of the glove. So I got stung about 10 times on the back of each one of my hands, oddly enough. And in that process, I uh, was trying to remove them and we were trying to repack the hive. So it became a little bit chaotic and we got everything put put back. But uh, over the next couple hours, my hands blew up to the size of uh, red water balloons and I wasn't able to supply move for our oyster reef build the next day. So we had to change our, uh, change our plans for supply moving for a couple days. I was taking Benadryl and uh, just hanging out on the couch while my hands the swelling came back down so it was a it was an experience but i i love working with the bees and i still love working with the bees and um you know that's just part of it sometimes you gotta gotta go through those trials and tribulations learning experience that's right and and because of this story um I actually went and got tested to make sure I wasn't allergic because I was like, I, I went into this head first and never even thought, hey, maybe I'm allergic to honeybees. So turned out I wasn't allergic. And then we, we did go back and decide that 
everybody needed to have leather gloves now and j just to try to make it a little bit safer because that same hive I ended up face down in a bush trying to get away from that same exact hive so they were they were quite they were quite the hive yeah yeah they were going through a it's moment. one we have not forgotten no. <laughs> Wow, but how smart are they to be like? To they're so smart. Oh, incredible! Yeah. Out and then everybody else knows. Like right oh, away, this is how we go. And I mean, I got stung on my right hand initially, and they knew that my left hand was vulnerable in the same spot somehow. So, I, you know, both my hands ended up getting stung in that right in that same spot in the back of my hand. Pretty incredible. That is amazing. Wow. So we really do need a whole episode just about the bees. Okay. We, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. so much to go into. Yeah. They are fascinating and how they communicate this. and climate control and how they work. There's, it's yeah. extensive and it, it incredible. Is. It is. It is. I'll throw in my favorite bee fact too that Clifton yes. taught me. Um, so uh, a lot of times in shows and cartoons, bees, or sorry, bears are... Uh, made to look like they go into a hive and they pull out the comb and they eat all the honey out of the comb because you know bears love honey but in fact the bears go for the part of the comb that has the the brood or the juvenile like the the infant bees so they go in trying to remove the hive that has all the the capped bee larvae essentially that's growing in there the brood the, yep, brood. the brood the brood that's the word i was Whoa. looking for so yeah. they're like looking for yeah for those like i guess it's higher calorie right than like it's just like plain old honey. protein protein yeah, yeah that's yeah. true yeah protein. there we go it's a very good protein source they know their carb protein you know macro balance <laughs> they, want, they want the protein <laughs> who knew about bears <laughs> who knew? they're so smart too I, actually i'm not surprised of course is there anything else we want to share about our hives and bees in general so I, I just kind of want to go through the one thing. I, I'm going to kind of call it bee etiquette. etiquette. Um, when you see a bee, I know, I know they have that little stinger, and you probably want to kill them. But don't. Don't. I, they're trying to mind their own business. Please do the same. We need them. Uh, let them be. Uh, don't swat at them. That makes them angry. Walk away if you can. Just... Just do everything in your power to make sure they can keep on going through their day so you have something to eat tomorrow. Bees, like Justin mentioned, a lot of times when they sting you, they will perish. So they don't really want to sting you. They want to continue to live and do their thing. So and so do we. You know, if you mind your own business, it will definitely protect you most of the time. Happy bees, happy people. That's right. Mm -hmm. I feel That's like right. this advice could go for so many things in It'll life go for a lot of things so in many life. things just leave it be just walk away yeah <laughs> yes. love that okay uh all right so Let's it's do this. time for the rapid fire uh, so oh. i'm going to ask you some quote unquote fun questions about <laughs> the topics of today <laughs> uh okay so they're fast just give me what's on top of your head we'll see i only wrote down three Maybe more will pop in my head. Okay. Favorite native plant to Florida? Scorpion tail. I love cabbage palms, sable palms. I think uh, they have a hidden beauty, you know? Everyone likes ornamental palms, but something to be said for that cabbage palm, you know? Yeah. I think firebush. Mm -mm. That's native Florida, right? It is. Okay, yes. great. Yes, Boom. then that's my answer. Done. Great I like one. it. It's a beautiful one. It's yes. so beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Favorite pollinator? Any sort of pollinator? I mean, I'm partial to bees and any bird oh but bats are cute too. bats are so cool all of them sorry not helpful <laughs> yeah i like i'm it's it's hard to say it really is i like bees and birds and butterflies but some of the uh the flies are actually hidden pollinators too mm, so that's right yeah you can't can't forget about those flies yeah they do so much yeah. are, are the yeah. flies your favorite I don't know if I have a favorite. I'm a terrible question, <laughs> a terrible answer. What no, this is a very random question. What pollinates mangroves? Uh, butterflies, usually. There's a few species of butterflies. Minus honeybee. Obviously. Those are my babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me what my favorite animal is, I'll usually say honeybee because oh. they are one of the most interesting animals I've ever come across. And every time I'm around someone who knows a lot about honeybees and they're just 
you know, spitting facts about honeybees, it blows my mind. Like every single time you hear something you haven't heard before. It really is one of the coolest animals. Yeah. Last one. Favorite piece of advice for someone interested in native gardening or helping pollinators? Yeah, I got some advice. (laughs) If you plant them, they will come. It's oh, just that. that easy. Just putting, even if even if you are like me and don't have a yard or a landscape and just have a porch with a potted plant, you are creating a habitat. And just get a native plant and you will find pollinators out there. And it's amazing. They just have to be present. That's all it takes. That. Yeah, I think, you know, keep it simple to start and uh, visit a local native landscape nursery and get some advice from the people that have been doing it a long time. If you love butterflies, they'll tell you exactly which plants to plant to bring butterflies into the yard. If you love bees, then, you know, you can plant different things, but start with one plant and go from there, and uh, and it will rapidly make you learn more about the environment around you, and um, it always starts with one, and then you know, really, you dive in head first because it's always really interesting the things that you see just by planting a plant in your yard. You never know who's going to come. You never know. And that when that pollinator comes, it might attract a bird, too. And, you know, when the when that plant is flowering, it might attract a certain pollinator. When the when that plant is fruiting, it might attract a species of bird or squirrels or something. So you get that one-two punch. You get yeah. both of them at the same time. So love that. An entire ecosystem from one slam. Do your research. Do your research before purchase and make sure you're trying to purchase something that is local. I think I'm going to add one more thing to that too. Not necessarily a plant related tip, or it is, but you know, how you care for the plants in your yard is, is a really important part of native gardening. So, native gardening brings in all those wonderful species, but how you water your yard, how you fertilize your yard is a really important part of why native plantings are also beneficial. So be conscientious of how much water you use, out of, even if it's out of your well. Um, ideally, use rainwater. You know, use a source that falls on your property. It doesn't have to get piped in from miles away from the city. It doesn't have to get pulled up out of the aquifer. It's a, a low-impact way to water your garden. And then use natural fertilizers if you do need to fertilize. So make your own compost. Um, save food scraps from in your house. Make compost and then use that to feed your garden. It's a, a low-impact way that reduces your carbon footprint because you're not shipping in fertilizer from a different state. You're using resources that are on your property already, maximizing them instead of sending them off to a landfill, potentially. So. That's a really great point. So win-win. Yeah. It just takes small little changes at home to have a great impact on the world that we live around us, that we're living in every day that we rely on. Just small steps, start easy, and you can make a huge difference. We got to end there. Like, that's, oh, my gosh. Mike, drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but please don't but drop don't our mics. Really. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for joining me today and sharing all your amazing knowledge. It was really great to have the three of you here. Thank Thanks, you so Lauren. much. It was great to be here. I really enjoyed it. Good. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to our channel. And if you have any questions about animal wellness, conservation, education, anything zoo-related, send us an email. So you can email us at podcast at brevardzoo.org. That will go directly to us, and we can ask those questions to people who are directly in the field doing this every single day and get those questions answered for you. We're looking forward to hearing from you.